I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. I'll actually begin reading in verse 19 of chapter 5, but we'll be looking at uh, chapter 6 this morning. Just one more word before I read God's Word. Verse 9, you'll read, But it better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and the striving after the wind. That's the last time that familiar phrase that we've heard throughout our series comes up, vanity and striving after the wind. It marks the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes. Just some insights that I thought maybe you'd appreciate. We'll begin in verse 19 of chapter 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for, for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Which, he, which passes like a shadow, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, Father, we pray that you would indeed prepare our minds and hearts to receive your word for us this morning from your scripture in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the other week when we were looking at chapter 5, I mentioned that chapter 5, verse 8, to chapter 6, verse 9 is actually one unit for Solomon. It goes together. Um, it was a chiastic structure I mentioned, remember, that funneling effect that put the focus on verse 20 of chapter 5. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God sustains his people with the joy of their hearts. And as we learn, the joy of our hearts as believers is none other than Jesus Christ. God himself, through his son, God himself is our satisfaction. Well, unfortunately, Solomon didn't stay satisfied for long. His dissatisfaction in life has brought us now to chapter 6. 
In chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, Solomon, what he does here is he illustrates for us, again, what happens when we choose the enjoyment in riches, the enjoyment of labor, the enjoyment of family, and we, we choose those things apart from God. In fact, he's going to go beyond this. It's been talked about already, but he's going to go beyond it. He's going to show us that, simply put, he says, there is absolutely no answers to life's mysteries. There are no answer to life's difficulties, no answers to the complexities of life, the confusion, the struggles, all these things. There's no answers apart from God. That's what he's going to illustrate. And he does it here by describing a man who has it all in chapter 6 here, yet he's lacking one thing. He has no satisfaction. In verse 2, we find that he has wealth, but he doesn't have satisfaction. In in verse 3 to 5, we find that he has family, but he doesn't have satisfaction. In verse 6, we find that he has this long life without satisfaction. And in verse 7, we find he has labor, without satisfaction. And in verses 8 and 9, we find that he has these cravings, and those cravings are never satisfied. He's without satisfaction. And see, when you put these five things together, you see that this man's story that we have in chapter 6 is actually being compared to and contrasted with the man that we find in chapter 5. In chapter 5, when we looked at it, we had a man who lost his wealth in a a bad investment. That's what we're told in chapter 5, verse 13. Well, here in chapter 6, this man has wealth, possessions, and even honor. He has everything his heart desires, verse 2. He is rich beyond belief. In chapter 5, we had a man who had only one son. And here we have a man who has 100 children, verse 3. In chapter 5, we had a man, relatively speaking, who only lived a few years compared to this man in chapter 6 who lived many years. And then both of them are comparable in the sense that they both had a good job. And so when you look at these two different men, it's easy to see that the man of chapter 6 has all the advantages. He, He has more money, he has more children, he has more life. God richly blessed this man. Many children and long life was the dream. It was the dream of the Israelites, kind of equivalent to the, living the American dream. But there was only one problem for the man. God did not enable him, this person, this man, to enjoy the dream. And this is where we see the greatest contrast between the man of chapter 5 and the man of chapter 6. In chapter 5, verse 19, we are told God has said to enable the rich person to enjoy his daily gifts. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, he says. But here in chapter 6, verse 2, we read something different. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. It's a connection between the two men by way of contrast. Uh, It's obvious. The emphasis is being placed on God, God's choice, God's different responses to these two men. God gives power to enjoy these gifts, and God does not give power to enjoy them. 
That's where all the difference in the world lies. That, that, that is where the understanding of why somebody can be filled with joy and somebody is just frustrated lies. God does not give this man of chapter 6 the power to enjoy all this wealth, all his family, and his long life. Now, we're not told why. We're not given the answer. We just know it's true. And so his riches, his honor... His job, his children, his long life brought no satisfaction. He could live twice, two lives over, and it wouldn't make a difference. That's kind of what we're hinted at here. Look at verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. And so what Solomon is teaching us here by illustrating it is, see, without satisfaction, uh, life is not worth living. Even if it were to last 2,000 years, it's just not worth living. In fact, Solomon says here in a, very, in a very shocking statement, he says, such a life is worse than a miscarried baby. Look at verses in 3 to 5. If a man fathers a 100 children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, this stillborn child has not seen sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he or the rich man. And so it's a simple argument here. A miscarried baby comes and goes without experiencing the bitter hardships of life. That's what Solomon's getting at. He or she does not see the light of day or know anything about the difficulties of life. It's a grievous vanity, we're told, the miscarriage. But Solomon argues that the fate of the dissatisfied man is far, far worse. Uh, we we're told here the, the miscarried baby found rest, as verse 5 states. But the rich man had no proper burial. No one mourned the rich man's death. No one was there at the end to put him in his final resting place, and therefore he cannot find any rest at all. And so here is that harsh truth that Solomon is making with this shocking contrast. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't matter how good your job is. It doesn't matter how large your family is. It doesn't matter if you have many years to live satisfaction in this life is not guaranteed. Without God and without the satisfaction he provides, life is worse than a miscarriage. That's his point. And so what is a person to do? How are they to find the answer? Well, we know the answer. We've talked about it several times. Solomon's brought it up. Obviously, the answer is turn to God. But see, all too often we don't. That's where the problem lies. When we're frustrated with life, even angry with life, we, we kind of turn to God with this clenched fist. We question his choices. We question his decisions. I mean, read the line here. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. It seems kind of unfair. He had the power. God did. God has the power to make this person's life satisfied. But God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and so when that situation happens, we want to know why. Why? I've heard people ask this question recently. You're going through great struggles. Why? Why me? And it's a tough question. The psalmists 
ask it several times in Scripture. It's a tough question, but such a question will get you nowhere. I mean, we have to wrestle with it. We do when things don't go our way. But, but verse 10 makes clear, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now here, what Solomon's doing is reflecting on the creation and the fall of man. When he says whatever has come to be has already been named, he's thinking of God doing what? Naming the things of creation, sky, moon, stars, and so on and so on. To name something is to what? Make it exist. To name it, it displays authority. For example, the stars in, in Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. That's Isaiah 40, verse 26. God named the stars. That's the point. He is their creator and their Lord. He has authority over the stars. Well, God named the first human as well. Named him Adam, which means man. And the name is correlating from where he comes from. Man comes from the earth. Man is earthly. From dust he came. From dust he shall return. As the psalmist writes, God knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. So what's the point of that? God named us and we are dust. Well, it puts us in our proper place is what it does. It, it, it establishes we are not able to dispute with one stronger than us, as, the, as Solomon said in this passage. Uh, man is but dust and the one stronger is God himself. Who are we to question our creator? Who are we to question our God? Who are we to question his authority, his sovereign rule? See, as long as we come to God with a clenched fist, we will not be in the position to hear from God what is necessary for us to find satisfaction in this life. Chuck Swindoll summarizes this verse as saying, so long as I fight the hand of God, I do not learn the lessons he's attempting to place before me. And, and so rather than with a clenched fist, what are we to do? We're, we need to submit to his sovereign hand. It, 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 submit to his predetermined plan. Solomon says in verse 10, whatever comes to be has already been named. Already been named. Already. Uh, these frustrations in our lives, these things that happen that we just can't comprehend, they've already been determined by God. Whatever happens in the present has already been predetermined in the past by our sovereign creator. Whatever comes to be, whatever enters my life, has already been sovereignly predetermined by the wisdom and the mighty hand of God. And he's done it for his own purpose, according to his own will, and for his own glory. He foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. See, by his providential hand, he wisely and powerfully governs all his creatures and governs all their actions. Nothing comes to us by chance. It only comes by his sovereign decree. And so why do we think we can question God? Well, on one hand, well, we know it all comes from him, so he's the right one to question. But what right do we have? What right do we have? There's a book in the Bible all about this, and it's the book of Job. 
And if you know the book of Job, you know that Job's riches were taken, his health was taken, his children were taken. And after he lost all that, all those things we just talked about, you can kind of see the comparison here that, that Solomon's making with Job. After he, he loses all that, what he tries to do is dispute with God. C.S. Lewis said he put God in the dock. What's that mean? He, he put God in the place, in the box where he, you question him. And, and, and Lewis said, and Job was the judge. And I'm going to question God. After he lost it all, God responds to him. This broken man. He lost his children. He lost his livelihood. He lost everything. His wife cursed him. And this is how God responds in that situation. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Chapter 40. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. He just lost everything, everything. He wanted to know why. He didn't understand why this would happen to him. By the way, one of the most righteous men to be alive, actually called the righteous man on earth at the time. And, 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 and God says, here, let me answer you in the midst of your despair and in your confusion. I am God, you are not. I am God and you are not. And so Job does answer. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. No more clenched fist. I lay my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then he says this, I know that you can do all things, and notice what he says, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Everything that happened to Job, Job's acknowledging, it happened because you ordained it. And it can't be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, for which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so do you see? Do you see the, the vanity of any attempt of arguing with God Solomon says in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? The more we speak, the more we attempt to dispute with God, the more vain we become. It's wasted breath. There's no profit or gain in arguing with God. Paul said, Where are you, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans 9, 20. And so that's Solomon's point. But rather than end the chapter with an argument, Solomon asks a few rhetorical questions. Look at verses 12. Look at verse 12, excuse me. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? That's the first question. And for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Basic questions about the meaning of life. 
basic questions about the meaning of death. The first question is about our present existence. The second question is about the life to come. And Solomon says, who, who has the answer for these things? And he's being rhetorical. He's being rhetorical because we know that only God has the answer for these things. Only God can give us the meaning of life and death. Only God knows what's good for man. Only God knows what comes after death. Only God has planned it all. Only God has preordained it all. Only God is sovereign over the past, over the present, over the future. And so obviously, if we want the answers to those questions, we must look to God. We must submit to Him. We must submit to His will. If we want to know what is good for us, if we want to understand life after death, if we must turn to the only place where the answers to that question is revealed, we cannot stumble upon them. We're not going to go to a college university and find the answers in a philosophy class. We cannot reason our way to them. If we were to live 2,000 years, we would never come to the answers that are correct. They are beyond our grasp. We cannot get it. We do not understand it. It's above our pay grade, as the saying goes. They have to be revealed to us. Someone has to reveal them. And they have been by God in his word. You want to know what happens after death? Here you go. I'm going to tell you because I know. And it's not because I'm smarter than someone else. It's because I read the Bible. He's he's revealed it to me. It's not because I'm wiser. It's not because you're wiser. It's because God told me. Here, let me give you a couple examples. Hebrew chapter 9. And just as it's appointed for man to die once... And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now some people, some people say there's nothing happens after death. That's true. In fact, they mock. They just think it's silly. Some people say after death you're reincarnated. That's a popular one. Um, it, it feels good. Some people just, just avoid it and say, well, we all go to a better place. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter what some people say. It, it's that simple. It doesn't matter what I say if it's not from the Scripture. It just doesn't matter. God says this. God says it. After death, here you go, there's judgment. There's judgment. After death, There's judgment, and there's the second coming of Christ when he'll actually complete the salvation he began for us here on earth, and and especially and particularly for those who long for his appearing, says Paul. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. That's great. Paul, Paul knows what happens after death. He's going to get a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day. He knows it. It's God's word. He says it. But notice he says this, not only to me. It's not just me. You would think, well, yeah, obviously Paul deserves a crown. No, not just me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Do you desire the Lord Jesus to come back? He's saying, well, there's a crown awaiting you. What comes after death? Judgment. What comes after death? The second coming of Christ. See, the Scripture teaches us, beloved, this is just a a basic Bible lesson. The Scripture teaches when we die, our bodies go to the grave and our spirits go to the Lord. For the believer, when you die and you're an unbeliever, your body goes to the grave and your spirit goes to hell. 
That's what the Scripture teaches. And then at the second coming, our spirits, all of our spirits and bodies are, are joined together, and we peer before Christ and are judged. Everybody. Uh, believers in Christ will be rewarded and go to heaven because of what Christ accomplished, not because of us. And unbelievers will be cast in the lake of fire with the devil and his demons. Now, could you imagine me on primetime television saying this? It's a little bit easier here. You may be mocking it silently, but at least I'm not getting chased out of the place. But you know what? This is what Paul, I mean, excuse me, this is what John says in the book of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave it the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave it the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What happens after death? There you go. Notice Satan's not ruling in hell or in the lake of fire. He's cast in there with the rest of unbelievers. What have you done with Christ? And what will you do with the knowledge you now have? See, that's why I read these scriptures, because now everyone here is without excuse. You know what happens. It's been revealed. And so will you submit to Christ and receive his forgiveness, forgiveness that he won for us on the cross by dying, or will you continue disputing with God, thinking, I have a better way. Why do you do this? If you're real, God, how, why does this happen? If you're real, God, why does that happen? And he says, are you God? You're not. Submit. You don't have life all figured out. You can't apart from him. And so that's the story that Solomon's illustrating for us. Let me just say to the unbeliever, and the unbeliever, I don't know God's predetermined plan for you. I don't know God's predetermined plan for me in certain things, but I don't know his plan for you. The point is you don't know either. And so the, the, the most important you think you can do, knowing that you don't know the future, knowing that God's word says that a judgment is coming, is to say, well, uh, it only makes sense for me to hear his word and respond and throw myself on the mercy of God, pleading with him to forgive me. And his word tells us if you go to him and ask him to forgive you in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done, you will be forgiven. My plea is that you would respond the way Job responded. I am of small account. How should I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. I despise myself. I am a sinner. I repent in dust and ashes. I don't know what you will choose, but this I know. You now have the truth, and you have no excuse. That's the answer to Solomon's second question. What happens after death? What about the first question? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? 
The full answer to that question is God knows what is good for man, and He has revealed that as well in Scripture. What does the Bible say? All Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness, training in what is good. Our, our, our lives may, be, may, may seem fleeting and vain, passing like a shadow. But Scripture says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so what is good for man to do? It's the will of God. And his will has been revealed. His, his, his revealed will in the Scriptures. There are things that we don't know, like God's preordained plan in the future. But we do know this. He's revealed it in the Word. It's that simple. He's told us how to live. But to be more specific because that's general. I'll have to read the whole Bible, and I'll just learn how to live. To be more specific, and I'll close with this, our passage does tell us what is good for man. It is good to find satisfaction in life. Remember the main point of that chiastic structure, that, that funneling effect, verse 18 of chapter 5, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. It is good for man to find joy in life, to find satisfaction. But there's even more. There's something mentioned in this passage that we should look to God specifically for if we want to have satisfaction in life. There is something specific that God must give us if we're to enjoy our wealth and our family and all the days on this earth. And he tells us it in verses 8 and 9. Look there. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? On the one hand, the answer is nothing. Um, uh, but there is more. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Now, the poor man here in verse 8 has something that we all need if we're going to be, find satisfaction in life. He knows how to conduct himself properly. Why? What has he discovered? Well, the answer is found in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, what's it say here? The poor man strives or lives, that is, by the sight of his eyes. Well, great. What does that mean? Well, it's a proverb. It's a proverb that means the poor man in this situation is content with what he has what he can see. It's what he has. He's content. He has contentment. You see, the rich man is always what? His eyes are always reaching for something he can't see, always wanting more, looking for more to fill his desires, constantly looking past what is right in front of him for something else. You know the saying, the grass is always greener in someone else's yard. Hey, the grass is always greener. Literally, for me, that's true because of my grass. But that's not the point, right? The point here is that I, I, have, I need their grass, and then I need that grass. I need this. I have this. It's wonderful, but I need that. I need that. They're never satisfied. And so the secret uh, to satisfaction is found in contentment. It's found in contentment. The secret to contentment is being able to take pleasure in whatever God brings into your life. And that's the difficult part. Because sometimes the things he brings into our life don't make sense to us. Contentment is knowing that your satisfaction, though, is independent of your circumstances. 
It's independent of your possessions. Contentment is knowing that your heavenly Father is not only working all things together for his glory, which is true, but also for your ultimate good, all things. Relief for vacation, I mentioned that. I'm going to enjoy it in Christ. What if it rains the whole time in storms and a tornado comes through? Can I still have contentment and joy? I can. I don't want that. (laughs) Uh, But I can. Why? Because I have Christ. And so we need to learn contentment. But we need to learn contentment not only when things are taken away from us, that's the difficult part, right? But also when we have an abundance, we need to be content. Paul said, now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How, Paul? How, how do you do that, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, that's how that verse is to be used. You know, I can't, I can't enter the next marathon and say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'll last about 30 feet and fall over. But I can find contentment because that's what Paul's talking about. I can do that. I can have contentment in plenty and in want uh, because Christ can enable Christ can strengthen me. Through Christ, we can have contentment. And you see how all this then points to that chaotic structure I keep bringing up because I want you to be impressed with that word because I can say it. I mean, to be content, you must learn to find all your enjoyment in God. To, uh, not that you can't enjoy other things, obviously, but you must find all your enjoyment ultimately in Christ. Why? Because, see, in Christ, you have riches beyond belief. In Christ, you have the greatest possession. In Christ, you have the highest honor. In Christ, you have a family bigger than any other family. In Christ, you have life eternal, days without end. Everything that man had, and you can have it with contentment and satisfaction because it's in Christ. Everything the rich man temporarily had without satisfaction is eternally yours with satisfaction in Christ. And so, let Christ be your satisfaction. If you will allow Christ to be your satisfaction, you will know joy all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. How easy it is to preach, how easy it is to read, how difficult it is to live, to follow through with, to believe. Enable us, Lord. Even as you enable us to have satisfaction in our our lives, enable us to live with contentment in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.